0: I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Dr. Megan Seven. She is a hydrogeologist and groundwater modeler at a water and environmental services firm, CDM Smith. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um, let's start with the question we always start with, which is, what, what do you do? What does a hydrogeologist do?
1: Yeah, I'm still trying to work that out. I think. Oh. <laughs> um, so I guess my my role is pretty pretty broad, depending on what the job's asking for. But hydrogeologist is interested in water and rocks, and in particular when those two things uh, combine together, so groundwater resources, and My main role would be to build computer models to predict what are going to happen, what's going to happen to those water resources under different circumstances. So it might be building a mine, or someone wants to irrigate crops, or it could be a a development that has a potential impact on an ecosystem or another environment, and so studying groundwater is is challenging and that we can't actually shrink ourselves and go down there and have a look at it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we have to, yeah, we have to use other tools which quite commonly involve um, computer modeling and numerical modeling of other forms to try and predict what might occur when we can't really um, go down and have a look for ourselves.
2: Well, you mentioned a lot of different uh, areas or or, um, problems. What, can you kind of be more specific in terms of what it is that you're working on Mm. So
1: I've recently, uh, so I've finished my PhD last year, which was very a research focused role, and now I'm working um, as a consultant. So my job is varied on a day to day basis. So um, one one particular area might be working with with government to help them secure their water resources. So um, it can be quite challenging because a, a basin that that holds a lot of water could straddle Political boundaries, for example, so you you need to work with policymakers on in both states to try and work out um, what's fair and what's equitable where a lot of the um, stresses are coming from. So, for example, um, I might take data that's been collected over a, a number of years and uh, put them into it to a model and try and say, okay, this is where the um, main stresses are occurring and um, this is what we think is likely to happen under different scenarios for a, so quite commonly these days people are talking a lot about climate change and what the impact of that on water resources might be so um, that's that's a real focus area over here at the moment in, in Australia in particular but then um, I've, I've worked recently on looking at um, a potential developments of um, some small mine sites around the country and Whether or not where they're actually um, wanting to build the mine, there might be enough water to to help with the processing side of things, or on the flip side, if um, the environmental consequences are too too severe um, for for it to go ahead. So uh, you're looking at a lot of different aspects of the problem within an uh, individual project.
0: So here here's a these seem like very different things to know about. I mean, knowing the background and the understanding of how mining works and how that can affect things is very different than climate change and trying to predict what's happening. Do you have to really sort of learn all these different other things or does hydrogeology sort of apply across the the platform?
1: I think uh, the main thing is that you're never really working as an individual. So all of the projects, particularly in a consulting firm, you're working with teams and everybody's got their own um, sort of background and specialisation. So for me, this is all quite new. I call myself a hydrogeologist, but um, my background is not necessarily geology. I come from more of the computer modelling um, hydrology sort of area. So I have to work really hard to, first of all, get my head around a whole lot of new lingo and jargon and and processes that I've never had to deal with before, like mine plans, and um, that that's not all part of my initial training. But the, my background, yeah, was environmental science, so not specifically a geological or mining engineering um, degree. So I'm I'm learning as I'm going, but I also rely quite heavily on other people whose expertise uh, within that area.
2: So uh, I'm already. T- Sorry, Lindsay, I'm gonna go wonky immediately. Please do. <laughs> um so I know people who do a lot of modeling in fluids, and I know people who do a mm-hmm. lot of modeling in solids. Um I'm assuming you do a lot of modeling with both. Mm-hmm. How does that work?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's challenging, is the the first thing to to point out, and, and there's a there's a lot that you have to consider. Um so for me, working in the real world is, is a big challenge in itself. All of those things that you mentioned, the, um, dealing with the, the solids and the fluids. Whereas my, my PhD study was very, I suppose, theoretical. So that was, uh, much easier to control. I was con- considering synthetic environments where I was choosing what parameters were going in and, and testing exactly the scenario that I was interested in. Um, so in that, in that particular case I was looking at how geologic features such as a fault line or, or a fracture um, impact how a contaminant will spread through a groundwater system so um, that was particularly in the context of a phenomenon called seawater intrusion which is where saltwater um, comes in and contaminates a freshwater aquifer, which is the, the, the term for the body of, of groundwater that we're accessing. So this is a huge problem in many places around the world, Australia, Mexico, um, United States as well, Florida and that area, um, where you've got particularly high populations living near a coastline. They're putting stresses on that groundwater system, so you can you can actually cause that salt water to come in. So you then have the complexities of two different density fluids that are mixing and trying to understand that, but then also uh, how it, how is the complexity of the natural world, which unfortunately is infinitely complex, so it's you have to really try and work out what the main aspects are that we need to consider if we're going to get the management of these environments um, as correct or as sustainable as possible. So um, that background was probably more um, in the fluid side of things, whereas now, um, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with the real world and real data that's been collected by people and, and you have to be able to um, understand what the limitations of that are, including any assumptions that, that go into the modelling, but also um, technical difficulties with, going and collecting it in the first place, and whether or not there's been any errors that have come through that process. So yeah, there, there are definitely a lot of things to consider. And for me, the geological side of things is something I, I didn't really work with a lot in the past. So I'm finding that very interesting, but also, yeah, it's, it's a challenge to get these things right.
0: I want to, um, rewind a bit and you talk about the research and the, and the modeling and, and that's your, your you know academic study. How did you f- go into this d- direction at all? What got you interested in hydrology and, and, and modeling things like that?
1: Yeah. So, um, I guess for me, my, I don't know if I would say it's untrad- untraditional, but I never actually really contemplated being a scientist uh, at all. I just, i thought to myself about about the age of 17 18 that my main passion was the environment and I wanted to find some way to work within that particular field or that area I just didn't really know what to do and a very wise careers advisor said to me well Megan you know if you study science you can work in science and management but if you study management you may find yourself sort of trapped to that that area and I thought okay well reasonably short attention span and like like to change things up. So I'm, I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to give this science thing a crack. So I, I enrolled in a, a very general environmental science degree. So within that, I studied a lot of um, geology, oceanography, meteorology, biology, hydrology, basically anything that ended in ology, I gave it a go. <laughs> and um, then, yeah, through having some very interesting and dynamic lecturers and also coming to the realization that that water was this thing that was universal no matter where you were on on the planet that we were always going to need it we're always going to have difficulties managing it and that's probably not going to change within my lifetime so I felt that it was a a really interesting area to go into that had uh, global relevance that would give me the opportunity to travel as well within the job but also there was an element of, of security there because I this is something that we're going to have to continue to work at and to improve. So putting that all together, I thought, yeah, this is the path that I wanna take and decided to specialize from about my uh, second or third year of university onwards and then eventually uh, took on a PhD.
2: What's been the transition like to go from a PhD where you're doing purely theoretical or uh, work or, or modeling and simulations to now having to deal with the real world and going out into the field and taking samples. Mm.
1: So I I did a little bit of that during my um, studies so it wasn't entirely new because I guess throughout my, particularly my undergraduate, I was always doing internships or volunteering and that sort of thing just to to make the connections but also uh, broaden my skills because you are limited with what you can learn within the confines of a lecture theatre. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a massive upskilling process and you sort of think, yeah, the PhD is really challenging and I'm so glad I've got there. And then you, you go into the next phase and and you're almost back at square one. Like you, you never have to stop learning. And so for me that was – it was a challenge but also I'm very excited by it because I think for a lot of people involved in research and who, who stick out postgraduate study. Um, they have to because of their love for, for learning that's the thing that keeps you going and so for me this is just it, it yeah it's, it's it's challenging but it's also very rewarding because I, I get to diversify and perhaps after spending four or five years being really focused in on one area it's giving me the opportunity to perhaps consider um, a new specialization I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that is just yet but being able to do the modelling and the fieldwork is giving me the chance to find another another niche or another interest that hopefully I can make my mark in that area as well.
0: I don't want this to be too depressing, but um, obviously you spend your time <laughs> working on on climate change and, and Australia particularly has had severe drought. Um, both of and I lived in California for a long time, so we know drought also. Um, how is it sort of working with something, working on something that is so sort of directly relevant to everyone's daily life
1: yeah it's yeah I, depressing is a <laughs> <laughs> there are elements that, that that ring true i guess because you feel like there's a there's a timeline attached to this and our ability to impact into and actually my best friend is um a, a client she's done a climate science degree but also working in the legal field of of environmental uh, legal theory and how that relates to um, what we are doing as scientists translating into um, law and, and, and policy and there's still this real disconnect there that can be incredibly frustrating when you feel that you're somewhat on the front line that you're seeing and measuring and observing these things that are going to have very real consequences but it's 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 like sometimes you've got to scream and shout to get the attention and <laughs> and, and beg for that attention to, to, to be taken. I don't want to say to be taken seriously because I think a lot of people do, but it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be when someone's telling you that business as usual is maybe not the way forward. So um, it's... It's important that we're that we're out there doing this and and trying to bring attention to it but I'm sure I wouldn't be alone in saying that there's a lot of frustration and and sometimes a bit of sadness that comes along with if wondering if we're going to get there yeah
0: do you do you feel like the um I mean obviously you've, you've been studying sort of the different parts of this but do you feel like there's a Change in perception, or a change in, and you know, if you say, "Oh, I'm working on, you know, water and hydrology and climate change," people are like, "Oh, that's great! I'm so glad you're working on that." Do you get sort of a, do you get feedback from people around you, or is it? Do you feel like you're contributing in some way like that? I mean, obviously, we oh, all definitely. are, but
1: yeah, um, I, I think the shift for me has been fairly rapid. So when I when I was doing my undergraduate and in my first couple of years of postgraduate, I would tell people, "Oh, I'm studying." groundwater and and they would say to me can you get a job in australia doing that sort of thing and i went well we are so disconnected from (laughs)
0: like do you drink water yes
1: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, that's right i mean i'm liquid gold to you right now (laughs) something like this but you you know then i would take the time to say hey like do you realize that the vast majority of fresh water on this planet is is underground it's the the part that's in the lakes rivers streams comparatively is is very small and and then they start their ears perk up and go wow i didn't actually know that that's that's very interesting but then uh when you meet someone who hasn't grown up or hasn't lived their whole life in in the city or somewhere coastal they're very particularly in australia they're very connected with this issue because they they rely heavily on access to bore water for their their stock their cattle um a whole lot of different industries or or businesses so when when you chat to someone like that they're that they're equally as passionate about it because this this not only is an environmental thing for them it directly impacts their livelihood and i think they uh, recently uh, encountered a couple of people who seemed somewhat relieved to know that there were people out there actively pursuing this and trying to um, improve the conditions for them but also make sure that the water supply there is going to be secure for them for for quite some time into the future because you know in australia sometimes these processes can take thousands and thousands of years to go from water you know, rainfall somewhere and eventually ending up underground so if we're using a lot of it it's actually not being recharged at the same the same rate <laughs>
2: All right, I have a question that will probably speak to more to my weirdness than anything. <laughs> Uh-oh. Do you do – you, well, no, it's not that bad. So do you have a favorite type of rock or configuration or something that you like that is cool to model or that, you know, you find interesting?
1: Yeah, I'm so, – well – me that they're like two different questions. So, I have a favorite rock. As soon as you ask me that, I'm thinking, I have a bookshelf that is literally just a rock collection. So, I'm actually picturing <laughs> yes. my favorite library. I have a, and I'm, it's even catalogued, and I can't believe I'm admitting that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes!
0: I'm cool, I promise. No, no, well, you, I mean, you, you should see what Mumu and I do in our spare time. Like, what is this? which is this and also Mumu counts numbers of things on TV and does spreadsheets. So don't judge. <laughs> we don't judge. Okay. Um,
2: but so we glad. go back to this rock
0: collection. Yeah. So I have, um,
1: I have pieces from all over the place, all over the world. And um, I think my favorite one is just a really beautiful piece of what's called chrysoprase. So they call it like a fake jade. So the jade, the green stone that people would make jewelry and that out of, and it's only found in a couple of places. And I, An old family friend was a prospector, and he collected a huge chunk of it still in its natural form, and and it sits on my bookshelf, and um, I actually have a a photo of me in the newspaper from a mentoring program I was involved in, and I'm holding that piece of rock, and I'm like, wow, this is just, I'm in the newspaper holding my favorite rock. This is just amazing.
0: (laughs) I love it. That's great.
1: (laughs) But um, in terms of the modeling, I guess my pet area is this, as I mentioned earlier, that um uh, seawater intrusion and um, fractured rock, so I like looking at uh, rocks that are very uh, they 're challenging because the the rock itself might be incredibly hard, so there 's not a lot of water moving through it, and contaminants themselves the only way they can get through is by diffusing, so that is a very slow process, but once you start putting. Um, fractures and fault lines and all these sorts of things in there they can sometimes move very very quickly and rapidly through these fractures and cracks and so unless we're able to build a model that can account for all of these tiny little heterogeneities we might completely underestimate the impact of a some contaminant spill an oil spill something like that moving through an aquifer system compared to what's actually happening in reality but it's so challenging to um, describe these mathematically or in a computer model um, because it's it's you're almost going to be running the model in real time like the time it would actually take this process to happen because of the complexities Within that. So trying to understand what the bare minimum we need to include in a model to get it about right in these situations, I think is a, is a huge challenge. Because if we just kind of assume that, all right, we're going to average the parameters inside our model, then we have the potential to either really underestimate or in some cases or overestimate. So I think that's a a challenge that a lot of people have uh, maybe shied away from at this point. Um, in in hard rock systems, that that happens a little more often. But uh, around the world, we have a lot of limestone, for example, um, in coastal areas, and so this this process can be very very commonplace. But it, up until now, it hasn't been very um, actively studied. So I think I find I find this an exciting area to work in because it's challenging, but it's also incredibly relevant. Cause, as I mentioned earlier, many of us live near the coast, and this is something that's happening every day and can affect millions of people potentially.
0: I have a a geography question, not a geology question. So if you create a model that applies to some coastal area that you're studying in Australia, would that same model apply in, let's say, Miami, or would you have to, like, change all these parameters because temperatures and water you know salinity levels and mineral levels are all different. I mean is it is it applicable or is it really particular to regions and areas?
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose in in my uh, case when I was doing more theoretical work, I was looking at rather than saying okay, these parameters are very reflective of this particular site. I would look at the relationships between those two parameters and say, okay, where your your ratio of these two parameters are, is about this, then you might expect this to happen. I see. Okay. So I, I tried to, I think, and, and a lot of us would do that as an initial step in research, I would say, when, when an area we're working in is fairly new, is to try and make it as applicable globally as possible, but then... Once you sort of get the, the mechanics somewhat right, um, which you need to t- test if you can by going out into the field and, and take collecting the data and then saying, okay, now I'm going to build a model that's very specific to that particular field site. So that may or may not be relevant elsewhere. Uh, in some cases, yes, but in other cases, no, you would need to, you know, go out and take new measurements and correct the the density of the the fluid that you're looking at to be relevant to that particular site or um you know that even the same type of rock can vary by orders of magnitude in how permeable it is so just to say oh okay i'm working in a limestone it is not necessarily enough you would need to go okay uh like what how uh, there's a a process called like castification so that's when you have a, a lot of that rock dissolves out and you get these beautiful limestone caves and things that we, we like to go and, and walk through and look at the stalactites and stalagmites and and that process can create like tunnels underground I suppose and so if you've got a lot of this happening then the, the ability for water to move in and out is going to be super high compared to an area where that castification process hasn't really started yet So yeah, that there are differences, but in saying that, that there are ways to go about making it as applicable globally as possible so that we have a starting platform to then do more targeted research from there.
2: Is there anything um, technology-wise or um, maybe theory-wise that is lacking that you know you're kind of waiting for to be solved or created
1: yeah I mean I think that that there would be so a lot of areas that we could improve on purely because nature and the environment is infinitely complex and it's really hard to to capture that and so I use the examples in in my research of, of fractures and fault lines and we can't ever really map them um perfectly because a lot of the tools that we use um especially when you when you consider time and funding constraints and things like that we have to drill wells or um spot locations to collect the data and when you've got a lot of random things in nature occurring you're not necessarily going to to hit a fracture when you dig that that well or something like this so we have other tools. There's a lot of ge- um, remote sensing and um, geophysics and, and these are all incredibly helpful, but um, they have a lot of time and expense currently attached to them. So we don't necessarily have access to them. Um, and then you, you need a whole lot of specialists as well that can, can deal with that information and process it once it's obtained. So it would be great to see a further development in in a lot of areas not only collecting the data but also the, the actual computing power itself is sometimes a constraint the problems i would looking was looking at were very small scale i was looking at you know a patch of one meter by two meters um and some of those models would take over a week to run so time time is often of the essence not in research it was a little bit more flexible in, in consulting not so much so um, I'm I'm waiting for quantum computing or something that can come in and give me all this like are, instantaneous are, oh, information. Yeah, isn't that the answer? Come on,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, so I, I have one last question. Um, and I, this is sort of it's veering very far off topic, but you know we we can go off the deep end about quantum computing, and and we sort of come back to the same thing, which is why we're doing this podcast. And I know one of the other things you do is is do uh, mentorship and and other things. Can you talk a little bit about that other sort of project of yours
1: yeah so i i'm going to steal a line from one of the students that i was working with yesterday and she said there's science and then there's science communication and i think both of those are really important because it's great to do all of this incredible research um, and publish in papers and and we get to share a lot of this knowledge between ourselves as a scientific community but if we want people to be um interested and actively involved and and care about the work that we're doing then we need to somehow find a way to take that from our research um little i guess bubbles perhaps is maybe a term and and bring that to the public and 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 take them on that that journey with us so uh that that's something that i'm very passionate about but also i think this is probably more what you're referring to is um mentoring particularly young uh, girls that that are Currently in high school or about to start high school to encourage them to consider science, technology, engineering, and mathematics as a potential careers. Um, there's a lot of data out there that that shows that um, there's no lack of interest with with these age groups. It's just that young young women unfortunately seem to doubt their capabilities to apply a lot of these concepts in the real world. They're um, they're lacking confidence to pursue some of these challenging topics even though that they're, they're more than capable than doing so so uh, one program i'm involved in called curious minds actually takes um about 30 girls from around australia aged between uh grade nine and well eight nine and ten and we match them up with a mentor who's a industry professional in science engineering uh, mathematics uh, for a period of about six months and we actually work on like a little project with them during that time they go off to a camp they get to meet all the other mentees from around the country and a lot of them are from like rural and remote areas where perhaps their their exposure or the opportunities to to meet women who are working in the industry is really limited so rather than um, you know risk them sort of dropping out or 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 they're being filtered out through the pipeline, we we try and encourage them by not only getting them together with other girls their age that have similar interests, but also um, aligning them with a mentor that can give them not only career advice, but just um, be honest with them about their own career pathways and and challenges with studying and, and how to overcome those challenges and still be successful and have really rewarding careers. So that's something that I'm, I've been involved in for a few years now and I'm really passionate about. But not just with the school, school-age kids, I'm also involved in a group. I, I did my PhD at, at Flinders University in, in Adelaide and um, was a founding member of a group called STEM Women Branching Out where we actually provide support to women in university because the challenges, unfortunately, for a lot of women, don't stop there. Uh, They continue to grow in some cases. And so we we like to try and provide them with um, not only some training but opportunities for for networking and support, but also to um, bring some attention to the incredible work being done by women in science and, and engineering because you know all about that yeah it's just <laughs> it's amazing I actually was involved in a project where we were able to do a roving light illumination display that um, we, we had volunteer students wearing all white lab coats and bits and pieces and we projected images on them where they were doing kind of like an interpretive dance piece. Um, and we took it all through the city of Adelaide and, and stopped and did like a flash mob style performance. And it was actually biographies of women in science from Australia. And on the final night, we, we took over some of the major buildings in the city and projected the images of the women, but also their biographies and achievements so that anyone driving or walking through the city that night was just bombarded with images of um, some of the incredible STEM women in Australia and their achievements. And then we also handed out postcards with the bios on them as well and said, like, you, you need to know who these people are and what they're doing. And the response from the public was great because a lot of them actually admitted, admitted unfortunately, that they couldn't name a single female scientist. And um, you know, I find that incredibly sad. But at the same time, I'm hopeful because the response that we received was really positive, and people wanted to learn. They wanted to know what was out there. It's just um, unfortunately the public presence of women in science, and I'm, I'm sure it's not just within not in Australia. It's a, a global problem that that there almost is none and so that's that's a problem from the mentoring perspective as well because you can't be what you can't see it's very hard for a 16 year old with an interest in astrophysics to imagine herself being successful in that field when all the science communicators that she's familiar with are all the males it's very difficult to see yourself being in that position when you don't self-identify so um yeah, we want to we want to increase this. We and actually have women being active in the media, social media, blogging, whatever it is, public speaking to try and actually say like hey, we're here and we're doing some incredible work and um yeah, this gender has absolutely no bearing on your ability to be a brilliant scientist.
2: That's that's exactly how we feel and kind <laughs> we of like encapsulated our entire month over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well megan thank you so much for taking the time to join us um this was really interesting um and thank you again
1: thanks thanks so much for having me
0: Hey, you're still here thanks for sticking around to the end of the show help other people find this podcast by giving us a reading on itunes and don't forget to follow us on twitter and facebook at scope podcast our theme music was composed by the copy cuts